we're continuing on, as Phil mentioned, we're continuing on in the Genesis series today. We're going to be going through um, Genesis chapter 6. And, and if you haven't been around in the previous weeks, we're approaching Genesis, which is obviously a massive book. There's 50 chapters in this book. So there will be many of the weeks will take significant chunks. Like today, we're going to really cover, in some ways, Genesis 6 through 9, all four of those chapters, which is the flood story. But we're going to do it by zeroing in on one part of it, which is going to be the second part of chapter 6. So I'm going to read through, as we start off, I'm going to read through all of chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and, ahead and turn to Genesis 6. We'll also put the verses up here on the screen. Should have cleared this with you. Paul, are you able to flip through as I read the scriptures? Thank you for doing that. Um, I'll read through all 22 verses, and then afterwards we'll zero in on verses 9 through 22 as we walk through this. So Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in this side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are, you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is God's word. Let's pause and let's pray before we move forward. Father, we give you thanks that you have spoken. 
just as you spoke to Noah out of the midst of the, the violence and corruption in the world, you spoke and something amazing happened. And Father, we believe that you have spoken through your word. We believe that you've spoken through your son, Jesus, who's our savior. And Father, we pray that you would speak in a special way now. We pray that as we read this story, as we reflect on your word, that you speak to us about big picture realities. We also pray that you speak to our hearts with where we're at right now. Thank you for your deep love and your deep care. Teach, equip, and lead us as we reflect on you and worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So obviously, if you, if you come to a story like the flood, um, which we're going to walk through, kind of verses 9 through 22, um, you're walking through a story about judgment. And we're walking through a story that, that kind of has three parts. We'll, we'll see it unfold. I'll, I'll put them up there as we go. But we're going to see that the way the story is told is we sort of get the setting. We get a little bit of information about the world and about Noah. We get the crisis, which is the longest section about what God is about to do. At the end, we just have a choice. We just have a one-line choice that Noah is left with when God announces a crisis to him. So we're going to walk through the story. We're going to try to get into it. We're going to try to figure out what this was like and really inhabit this story because this isn't just a story about something that happened long ago. This is a story about who God is, who we are, and what this world that we're living in is like. Um, now, as we walk through, what, what we're going to see is we're going to see a connection not only between the judgment that happens in this passage, but between that and a theme through the book of Genesis so far, and that's mercy. Now, some of you love when you're taking notes, you love to fill in the blanks. I'm just going to tell you right now, we got one blank today. That's it. Some of you are deeply disappointed. Some of you are like, we have notes and blanks. You had no idea. Um, Here's what I want to do. I, I want just to show this to you, to show that this is sort of the crux that's going to hold this together. There's a connection. This passage is going to show us a connection between God's judgment and God's mercy, which instead of just telling you at the, at the outset, I want us to just walk through the passage together and land on as we see how the story unfolds. So walk through it. We'll walk through the setting. We'll walk through the crisis. We'll walk through the choice. And then we'll return to this idea of the connection between God's mercy and his judgment. So right away, we've got the setting. And, and what you quickly learn in the setting is that things have spiraled down. Things have quickly gone from bad to worse. Just a couple weeks ago, we were in Genesis 2, and we had this perfect place, this perfect paradise that God had set the man and the woman up. And it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Things were harmonious. Chapter 3, things start to go wrong because Adam and Eve sin, and then the world is cursed. And then things spiral further from that, as Troy walked us through last week, where we move from the sin in the garden to murder outside the garden with Cain and Abel. And then when we land in chapter six, we have this statement in verse five. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Take this in. Some of you are like, I was gone for two weeks. What happened? <laughs> like we were just in paradise. This has gone bad quickly. Every Friday, I have uh, my, my two younger sons, because they're the ones who really use it, I have them clean the garage. And the reason I have them clean the garage is because that's where all their Legos are and a whole bunch of their toys. And I am astounded every Friday with how disastrous the garage looks. I always think, we just cleaned this. 
It's only been a week. It's only been six chapters. Hasn't even been six chapters. We're at verse five of chapter six and only evil all the time. In fact, you saw it, if you were listening and as I was reading through, you saw kind of a weird statement that was made about the sons of God and the daughters of humans and that there was marriages going on there and that that somehow led to God deciding to judge the earth. I'll just tell you real quick, it's a very confusing, controversial passage. What I believe it's actually saying is that the sons of God is referring to sort of the great kings and judges of that time. Because throughout the Old Testament, that sometimes is a phrase that's used to describe them. And what it's saying is this is sort of the first instance of harems in the world. And that instead of people who grow to great lengths of, of, of fame and, and of, uh, of sort of greatness in their time, instead of using that to be industrious and to help their fellow man, they use that in order to accumulate for themselves all of the beautiful women they can find so that they can have as many descendants as possible. And you know why they want as many descendants as possible? It's because that's how you get fame and greatness. We're going to see this next week when we walk through the story of the Tower of Babel. But the whole reason this tower was being built is because the builders were saying, we want to be great. And we've got people in the flood story saying, we want to be great. And just think for a second, because this goes right back to Genesis 3. You know why Adam and Eve ate the fruit? Because they wanted to be like God. And once again, we have this human tendency to say we want to get to a point that we're great enough that we don't need God at all. Only evil all the time. But we get a glimmer of hope in verse eight, which is the statement. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then as we move into verse 9, we get a little bit of a description of Noah. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. And then we're told about his three sons who end up coming into the story much later. Not what we'll cover today, but if you were to read all the way through the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10. Noah is blameless. Noah is faithful. Noah is walking with God. And that's made that much more remarkable by the description of the time that he's living in. Because verses 11 and 12 say, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. We get Noah as the blameless man and we have the earth in utter corruption. We have a godly man in a godless time. Noah stands out dramatically in his time. On Friday nights, when everybody's hitting the bars, Noah's at home leading evening prayers with his family. When all of Noah's neighbors and the entire community is accumulating as much as they can to selfishly feed their own pleasures and egos, Noah's setting up tables to feed the homeless and the widows and the fatherless. He's a righteous man in an unrighteous age. And Noah responds differently when his crops are stolen, because for other people, when their crops are stolen, it's a violent time. They just go and get revenge. They take back what's theirs with violence. But Noah doesn't do that. He tries to go through due process. So he goes to the judges to try to get justice, but he doesn't. You know why? Because he's unwilling to grease the wheels of justice with a bribe. Noah is a godly man in a godless time, and he stands out. 
And it's worth just pausing here for a minute and taking this in. Uh, I think if, if you're in this room, chances are good. Maybe, maybe not for every single one of you. Some of you might be saying, All right, I'm trying to figure out what I think about Jesus. But most of us in this room, we say, I want to be godly. I want to be faithful. I want to walk with God. I want to be that godly person. But we're hesitant to do things that would lead us to stand out. We're saying, yeah, I, I want to be faithful to God, but I don't want to be seen as weird. If I'm seen as weird, and sometimes we even justify it, we try to spiritualize it. I mean, if people think I'm weird, they're not going to want to become a Christian. So I've got to show them how normal I am. I'm going to have to show them that I'm just like them so that they won't be turned off. Now, here's the deal. Our calling is not to be weird just for the sake of being weird. Some of you could even use it as an excuse. Hey, I'm this way. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it does. All right. Be polite to other people. Don't be strange. Don't be awkward on purpose. That's not the Christian calling. But if you are going to be faithful to God, if you are going to walk faithfully with Jesus, you will stand out. It's inevitable. You'll stand out. In fact, not only will you stand out, but you'll miss out. There's no way that Noah wasn't making sacrifices to set aside temporary pleasures in order to count on the fact that God would make the ultimate reward worth his while. Noah is saying no to instant gratification. He is missing out and he is standing out. And if we are unwilling just to do the basic things to stand out because we're unwilling to take that hit, we will miss out on being able to shine the light. Noah stands out because the light shines that much more darkly in the darkness, that much more brightly in the darkness. Noah is a godly man in a godless time. And that's the setting that we find ourselves in. And we move on to the crisis and the crisis happens because God speaks. So God said to Noah, and I know we're kind of used to the idea. Well, sure. God said to Noah, this is Genesis. God is speaking to people. Just take this in for a second. We don't have any indication that previously God had spoken to Noah. What must that day have been like? Noah's going about his business. It seems like he was probably a farmer by some stuff that happens later on. He's doing his work. He's interacting with his family. He's, he's trying to ignore some of the temptations of the world around him. And God speaks to him. When God speaks, this brings a crisis. And I know for many of us, when we hear crisis, we think, well, a crisis is bad. No, a crisis just means a point of decision, a point where something big is going to happen. God speaks. Uh, I'll just say this. I don't know what everybody's experience is, but I, I, I've been a believer for like 35 years now. There have been many times that I've been convinced uh, of God's leading in my life, that he's leading me to say something or that he's leading me to not say something or that he's leading me to apologize or to make a certain decision. There are lots of times where I could say I, I was convinced God was leading me to do that. I have never heard God talk to me out loud. If he did, it would be unforgettable. God spoke to Noah. This is earth-shaking stuff. And it's that much more because of what he says. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. It's a word of judgment. I am going to drown every person. Uh, now, here's the deal. We know sort of where this story goes. We know, well, well, but Noah gets rescued through the ark. Noah gets rescued. 
But I, I just want to say, I think it's very unlikely that when Noah is hearing this announcement of judgment, he is hearing God say, I am going to wipe out all humanity. And Noah's thinking, but definitely not me. Here's why I think it's very unlikely that Noah thought, definitely not me. Because godly people are typically pretty unimpressed with their own godliness. I don't think Noah necessarily saw himself as somebody who was dramatically different from the world around him because godly people are rarely impressed by their own godliness. When Noah heard this, what I assume he probably thought is, that sounds about right. That seems about right. I mean, look at the earth. Look at what we've done. Look at all the corruption. Look at all the evil. Look at all the violence. I don't like the news, but that sounds about right. But thank God the news isn't finished. God says, I'm going to judge the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits high, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving the roof and opening one cubit high all around. Put a door inside the ark. Make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on the earth will perish. God says, I want you to build an ark, which sometimes if, you know, if you grew up sort of in a church and you had all the different pictures and the flannel grass, you're like, oh, you know, the ark, not, not an ark. Did you hear the description of it? This is not a boat. This is basically a giant chest, some rectangular thing that's just going to float up and save the people and the animals during this time. Um, and and I, I'll just say this real quick, because some of you might just be like, all right, let, let's keep going with the story. Some of you might say, all right, I'm, I'm a little hung up on here. There's a lot of animals. So a lot of space. How does this all work? And I just want to throw out, if you're hung up on this, I want to give you a resource. There's a resource. There's a book called Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study. And it's by a guy named uh, John Woodmerap. And so you can look it up. You can Amazon it if you want to read it. If you're saying, gosh, uh, the, just honestly, this is a hard story for me to believe. I want to see, could they all fit on the ark? I, I frankly think one of the reasons why the specifications are even given is just so that we can say, yeah, actually, this is workable. This is clearly a miraculous story, but this is a workable story. This is something that could happen. And I believe it's something that did happen. So if you're hung up on that, there are resources. You can come talk to me afterwards if you didn't get the information and I'll be happy to pass that along. But the biggest point of this is not for us to get hung up on sort of the details of how did all of this work? Give me the logistics. The point of this is that God is about to bring cataclysmic judgment to the earth. And before going on, we'll just pause and say a lot of us are uncomfortable with that idea. A lot of us look at things about God and we say we like his love. We like his grace. We like that he keeps his promises. We like that he shows us mercy. Those things are good. We're on board. God's judgment, hell, condemnation, those things are things that we're not necessarily crazy about when it comes to God. We're good with the mercy, we're not so sure about the judgment. But what I want you to see in this story is that mercy, mercy is not the obvious part of this story. Judgment is really the obvious thing in this story. Um, I, I don't know how many of you like YouTube and looking for stuff on YouTube, but there's a group of guys that have a whole bunch of YouTube videos. That they're called Dude Perfect. And if you are, some of you have seen this. 
There are these guys that do these amazing things, usually trick shots with sports things. So they'll they'll do not just, you know, I'm going to try to make a three-pointer at the basketball hoop, but I'm going to throw the ball off a building. It's going to hit off a car, then off this wall, then back over here. And they're just these unbelievable things. You can go and YouTube it later. They're just amazing. And sometimes I watch these videos and the thought that goes through my head is how many hundreds of misses preceded this make? Because when they make the shot, they're celebrating, they're running up and down, they're screaming, they're hugging each other. And the reason for that is that when you're taking a shot from the building, off the car, off the side, into the hoop, is it surprising that you would miss? No, it's obvious that you would miss. The surprising thing is not when you miss, the surprising thing is when you make it. Now here's how this relates. When we read Genesis 6, the surprising thing is not that judgment is coming. That's obvious. Judgment should come. The fact that God judges us is the obvious news. The fact that he shows us mercy is the surprising part of this. That should be the part that just makes you scratch your head. Just think of this. This has been a theme already through Genesis. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sin. And if there was ever a time for the appropriate use of the phrase, you had one job, it's there. My gosh, I set you guys up in paradise and gave you literally one thing you weren't supposed to do. God should kill them right there. That judgment would seem obvious. God does judge them, but he shows mercy and he clothes them on the way out of the garden. When Cain kills Abel, the obvious thing is that God kills Cain. Now God judges Cain, but he also shows him mercy by putting a mark on him so that nobody will take revenge on him. The earth is only evil all the time. Judgment is the obvious thing. The strange thing is that God says to Noah, build an ark, I'm gonna save you. Now, I'll say this also. We're really double-minded with this in our culture right now when it comes to God's judgment. We want a very hands-on God when it comes to blessings. When we're looking for a job and we can't find a job, we're like, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing this? When we're unhealthy and we want to restore health, God, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you healing me? When we're having trouble in our relationships and in our marriages, we say, God, why aren't you just fixing this thing? We want a very hands-on God when it comes to blessings, but then we want a very hands-off God when it comes to judgment. Why does God even care? Why doesn't he just leave us alone? We're very double-minded about this. And what we believe about God and what we want from God isn't what determines what's true of God. But I'll just say this also. You would not want to live in a world where God was not the judge. That would not be a good world. That would not be a good God. You would not want to live in a world where God looks at the Holocaust and looks at genocide and looks at abuse and looks at all of the horrible things that happens in the world and shrugs his shoulders and says, who am I to judge? It is good news that God judges. It's just bad news for us that we are part of that judgment. God's judgment is the obvious thing. His mercy is the surprising part of this story. And his mercy shows up all through this, but more in verse 18, where he says, but I will establish my covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise to you, Noah. And sometimes when you hear covenant, you can think, well, there's two sides to a covenant. So God does something and Noah does something. But really in this, it's pretty much God doing stuff. 
God says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You are going to be rescued through a boat. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark all li- two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Not only are you going to be saved, but the animals are going to be saved through this. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away for you and for them. Noah, judgment is the obvious part, but I'm going to show you mercy in the midst of all this. And we do get a choice at the end. We do get right at the end, just one statement about response from Noah. And verse 22 tells us, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah responded to this news that judgment is coming, that a flood is coming, and that he's going to have to build this giant chest in order to escape. And he responded with obedience to everything that God had commanded him to do. By the way, just as this verse says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. It's important to know God also did everything just as he said he was going to do. If you read through the rest of this narrative, which we're not going to do, you see in chapter 7 that after Noah has built the ark, God says, speaks to him again and says, time to get inside. The floodwaters are coming and the floodwaters come. And after the floodwaters come and they recede a little bit, God speaks to Noah again. He says, he says, all right, it's safe to get out. And after they get out, God reestablishes his covenant, reestablishes his promises to Noah and his descendants. And he says, repopulate this place. I'm starting afresh with you. Noah does just as God commanded him. And God showed himself faithful to do everything that he said he was going to do. This is a story about judgment. And this is also a story about mercy. I teased at the beginning. I said, all right, there's a connection between these two. I want to come back to that now and say this. Here's the connection in the story between judgment and mercy. God's judgment is a platform for his mercy. And I want to say this very clearly so that you understand what I'm trying to say here. What I'm not saying is God's judgment is mingled with mercy. That's not the point. The point is not that God is sometimes judgy and sometimes merciful. That's not the point either. God is a judge, but when he judges, that judgment itself is an opportunity for him to show mercy. And you'll never know how much mercy you've received if you don't realize just how much of a judge God is. I use the word mercy because mercy is different than grace. Grace, they're very connected. Grace is the idea of God gives us gifts that we don't deserve. Mercy is the idea that God doesn't give us punishments that we do deserve. We need both these things. There are times that we just praise God and say, thank you so much for all the good gifts in my life. Thank you so much for showing me all the grace. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my health. Thank you for my job. Thank you for forgiving me and promising me heaven. Thank you for giving me the Holy Spirit. Thank you for all the amazing gifts that you've given me. And I just want to make a suggestion to you maybe especially during this Thanksgiving time, it would be worthwhile for you also to spend some time thinking about all the times that God could have taken you out and chose not to. God, thank you so much that right now I have any kind of life around me. Thank you so much that I was not condemned to hell for some of the things that I did. Thank you so much that you didn't strike me dead. Thank you so much that I'm not divorced. Thank you so much that my kids don't hate me. Thank you so much that I'm not in jail. Thank you so much that I still have my job. How many times, if we're honest with ourselves, were we in a situation where God would have been absolutely right to take us out? But in his judgment, he showed us mercy. 
And the fact is, just as Noah was living in a time where he knew the clock was ticking, he didn't know exactly when the flood was going to come, but he knew there's an expiration date here. This is going to end. We live today in a time that we also know the clock is ticking. Just as God told Noah, judgment is coming on this earth, we know we're living in a time where judgment is coming on the earth. We don't know when, we don't know exactly how, but we know that God will ultimately judge. The last verse of Ecclesiastes gives us a hint of this. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. God will ultimately judge everything that we've said, everything that we've did. Now take that in. A lot of us hear that verse and we're like, ugh. But maybe there's some of you that hear that verse and you're like, I like my chances. All right, I'll- I like my chances. I, I haven't, you know, I've, I haven't captured children and made them slave soldiers or, done, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of these really bad things. If God is going to judge at the end, I like my chances. You shouldn't like your chances. Here's what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear like a, with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. God flooded the earth, and one day God will once again judge this earth. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, but with Noah, God said, build an ark. And the whole idea with this, I I imagine sometimes what it was like for Noah just years after the flood. He's gathering around, he's got his grandkids and probably his great-grandkids, and he's telling them the story. And there's a couple different ways he could tell them the story of the flood. So here's option number one. Noah could tell the story of the flood this way. He could say, all right, guys, God was going to send a flood. But old Noah, Noah built an ark. And you're all here today because I built an ark. I guarantee you that is not how he told that story. Noah didn't tell the story in a way of God judged, but I saved us. I guarantee you the way that Noah told the story was God decided to judge the earth, but he saved us. He rescued us. He showed us mercy. And we were saved only by entering into an ark that saved us. And today God hasn't sent us an ark. He sent us his son. He has sent us Jesus Christ as the ultimate savior. He said, judgment is coming to the world. And if we're honest, we would look around the world and we can say, that sounds about right. That seems appropriate. We should be judged. And not just all of them, but if we're going to be honest with our own lives, we'd say, yeah, I I should be judged. How many times have I tried to get out of something with a lie? And how many times have I slammed other people with my words? And how many times have I cheated other people with what I've done and what I've said? I deserve judgment. The only way we're saved is not because we're smart enough to choose Christianity or because we're wise enough to go down a moral path. The only way that we are saved is by faith clinging to Jesus. Noah entered into the ark and he was saved. We enter into a relationship with Jesus and we are saved. We are not saved because we did something wise. We're saved because God saved us. And let me just read for you because there's a passage in the New Testament that really walks through this. Ephesians chapter two, I've got it up here on the screen. We start with the judgment. As for you, and this is speaking to the Ephesians, but this is really speaking of the human condition. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. God was going to judge us, and you know what? He was right to do it. It was absolutely appropriate. But, starting in verse 4, but because of his great love towards us, God, do you see it? Do you see it up there? God who is rich in mercy. God uses the occasion of our sin and our brokenness and our guilt and all of the muck of our lives and he uses it as a platform for his mercy. God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Our message is not, judgment is coming, so you better really get your affairs in order. Our message is, judgment is coming and it's too late for you. Unless God saves you. And he saved Noah through an ark and he saves us through his son, Jesus. We can get uncomfortable with God's judgment all we like, but God's judgment is ultimately the platform for how he shows his mercy. And you will never revel in the mercy of God unless you first take some time to have the reality of check of God's judgment of us and the fact that he's right to do so. You know, at a time like Thanksgiving, I think it's appropriate that we take time to revel in and celebrate the mercy of God in our lives. And you know, sometimes we celebrate that simply by looking at the times that God has judged us. And if we're Christians, that, that's even sort of with a lowercase j where we say, all right, well, God, God judges us with his discipline. He disciplines us because he's our father and we're his children. And when you think about your life, it should not be surprising at all that God would discipline you. The surprising part is that he disciplines you for your good. He disciplines you to shape you. He disciplines you not just because he's upset, but because he wants to grow you into being the man or the woman that he's called you to be. So when you get off track, he helps you get back on track with consequences. And even other times where you're not specifically off track, but you're just lacking in an area, he brings difficulty and trials into your lives to shape you. God disciplines you. And the message for all of us is that that discipline itself is judgment, but it's also the platform for God's mercy. Bear up under that discipline. Don't lose heart. Don't go a different way. Don't abandon the narrow path. Bear up under that discipline because that is God's mercy to you. And not only that, but let, let's take a cue from Noah, who according to 2 Peter was called a preacher of righteousness. We don't know if he ever said a word, but if you are spending years and years and years building a boat in the desert, you're making a statement to your neighbors. And it even says in Hebrews chapter 11, he condemned the world, which is kind of a funny thing to say because Noah is not qualified for that job. Noah isn't qualified to condemn the world. I mean, he, he can do it, but it doesn't mean anything. It wasn't that Noah himself was condemning the world. It's that Noah was bearing witness to the fact that the world was condemned by God. And one of the reasons why we stand out as strangers in this world is because our lives bear witness to both the judgment and the mercy of God. Have you ever noticed how uncomfortable people get around you sometimes when you're just doing a simple thing that God has called you to do? How people squirm and feel talked down to and feel like you're self-righteous when you're not trying to do that at all. You're just trying to follow God's leading for your life. 
When that happens, it's happening because you are bearing witness to their judgment. You're bearing witness to the fact that we are all judged by God. You're not necessarily outright condemning them. You're just demonstrating the fact that as by living as a stranger, we're all under judgment. And it's only if somebody takes that difficult truth and realizes that they're under judgment that they can celebrate God's mercy. And finally, let me just say this as, as we get ready to transition. Let's take Thanksgiving as an opportunity not just to thank God for all of his good gifts. But I swear, if you just spend half an hour and that's it, half an hour thanking God for all the times he should have got you and he didn't get you, you'll have more material to work on than you could imagine. God's mercy to us is the reason we still stand today. And one of the great things that we get to do now is we get to celebrate a physical illustration of his mercy as we get ready to take communion. So if you're going to be helping out with communion, you can head towards the back as we prepare. God is a God of judgment. And Jesus died because God is a just God. God did not simply look at our sin and say, no big deal, let's forget it. God said, that is sin, that is evil, that needs to be punished. But he sent his son to rescue us from that punishment. Jesus took that punishment for us because even in God's judgment, he uses it as a platform for his mercy. So as we get ready to take communion, to celebrate the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus for us, let's use this as an occasion to revel in the mercy of God, to recognize that what Jesus suffered on the cross is what should have been due to us. But by God's mercy, we stand. Let's pray together as we get ready to partake. Father, we pray first of all that you are honored in our hearts and in our actions through what we're about to do, through the songs that we sing, through these elements that we take. We pray that you are honored, that you are glorified, and that a smile comes to your face in seeing your people draw near to you. Father, you are a God of judgment, and even though we tremble at that, we also thank you that you care much more about injustice than even we do. Sometimes we cry out to you to act, and then we tremble at the idea that we would be swept away in your judgment. Thank you that by your mercy, we are not swept away. Remind us during this time of the price that was paid so that we could have mercy. The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus for our forgiveness and for our adoption. We pray that you would be pleased and that we would grow during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.